Ecclesiastes chapter one, beginning in verse one, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? The book of Ecclesiastes is about life or rather the meaning of life and more Specifically, the theme of this book is the search for meaning. G.K. Chesterton said, quote, the troublesome thing about life is not that it is rational or irrational, but that it's almost rational. Chuck Colson, the former Nixon hatchet man and now God's sharp knife, wrote, quote, life isn't like a book. Life isn't logical or sensible or orderly. Life is a mess most of the time. And theology must be lived in the midst of that mess. You know, Ecclesiastes has some things in common with other books in the Bible. Uh, The book is usually described as wisdom literature, along with the rest of Solomon's writings. We can't be sure, but I believe that Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon in his idealistic youth. In the Song of Solomon, it's about a young man in love with a young maiden. And as he continues to grow up, I believe that he writes the book of Proverbs. But I'm going to suggest to you that the book of Ecclesiastes comes as the sun begins to set on his own life and he begins to reflect specifically, diligently and thoroughly about his own life. One commentator, T.M. Moore, describes Ecclesiastes as, quote, part biography, part poetry, part Proverbs and wisdom statements and part diatribe. It invites us to savor its various chapters as separate points in an overall argument for transcendent living, unquote. The thing about Ecclesiastes also is that it is very, very difficult to outline. But I'm going to give it a try. You may not know this, but I've never taught this book before. One of the reasons, and I've been in the ministry almost 30 years, and I I took the chance of teaching the book of Revelation, and I should have taught Ecclesiastes even before I taught the book of Revelation. It's a difficult book. The book begins and ends with a question and an answer. And the question and the answer that it begins with in chapter 1 and ends with in chapter 12 is what is the meaning of life? This is sort of Solomon's version of what you and I might call the purpose-driven Jew. It's based on the preacher's diligent search for meaning, purpose, satisfaction in human life. And the question is asked and answered from the perspective of human wisdom and human inquiry. It takes into consideration the inquiries and iniquities and absurdities that surround human existence. But I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine a man, one man 
with the greatest intellectual capacity, with supernatural gifting in the area of wisdom, with unlimited resources, both political and material, unlimited wealth. And you're able to ask and answer this question, what is the meaning of my life? And you're able to scratch every itch. You're able to ask and answer the question, what pleasure, what power, what wisdom, what experience is there left for me? And you begin to understand something about this book. You see, Solomon writes the book. And in chapters 1 and 2, Solomon declares the problem. What's the meaning of life? Or we might even say, is life even worth living? And the first response is that life is empty. It's meaningless. It's vain. And since life is so short and so insignificant, why bother to live at all? When faced with the meaning of life, the wisest human being, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, asks the question, is it meaningful to live? If you can't discover the true meaning of life, the preacher argues that we're all cogs in a gigantic wheel in a world filled with mysteries that pleasures can't satisfy and death ends everything. And in chapters three through ten, the preacher intimates that God has a purpose for our lives. And if that purpose exists, then God gives riches according to his will and that God's wisdom and instructions will guide us throughout life in chapters seven through ten In chapters eleven through twelve. The preacher makes some decisions that we live by faith in chapter 11 verses 1 through 6 we remember the brevity of life in chapter 11 verses 7 all the way through chapter 12 verses 7 and then the inquiry ends with this summation fear God and obey his commands and so he begins with his own identification look again in verse 1 the words the words of the preacher The son of David, king in Jerusalem. We begin with the man himself. Who is this preacher? He identifies himself with the Hebrew title Kohelet. You may not know what that means. It's a rare term and it appears in the Hebrew Bible only here in the book of Ecclesiastes. It comes from a root word kahal in the Hebrew language, which meant to call an assembly or to convene an assembly. Even more precisely, it meant to preside over an assembly. And the word came to mean that the person who calls a meeting, he calls the assembly together. He he gathers the the wisest people that he can possibly find. And he says, "Okay, all of us are going to get together and we're going to ask and we're going to answer this question. Why should we even exist? What's the meaning of life? And so the word came to mean the person who addressed the assembly or preacher. The Greek translation of the Hebrew kohaleth is the Latin word ecclesiastes. It became the title of the book. Because when this Hebrew book was translated into the Greek language, it was ekklesia, assembly, 
congregation. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, that is the word, the gathering that is going to become the word that you and I use for church. And so the Greek word Ecclesiastes becomes the Latin word Ecclesiastes, meaning the speaker, the speaker before the assembly. And so that's he says the words of the preacher or the speaker before the assembly. He identifies himself as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, the Jewish Talmud credits Solomon as this author. But the Talmud also suggests that as hundreds of years went by, Hezekiah's scribes may have had a hand in editing some of the texts. You can see that in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 1. But I think that there are powerful, powerful reasons to believe that this is Solomon. Because, number one, Solomon is the son of David. Number two, he's the king in Jerusalem, but also because he is the best qualified person to ask the question, gather the information and then draw conclusions for his quest. You know, the scripture clearly refers to Solomon's unsurpassed wisdom. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Solomon, we've just con- Finished um, the life and times of David, which we covered in first and second Samuel in first Kings, chapter one and chapter two and chapter three and chapter four. We get an overview of Solomon's life in first Kings, chapter four, verse twenty nine and thirty. It says, and God gave Solomon wisdom, exceedingly great understanding. Largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He's wise. David had a different name for his son. When he was born, David called him Jedidiah. Jedidiah means he who is beloved of the Lord. And you can imagine the sense of greatness and the sense of destiny that hung on the shoulders of the prince. His father is David. If David is a type of Jesus in his humiliation and exile and rejection, Solomon becomes a type of Jesus in peace. As a matter of fact, his name Solomon means Peaceable and Solomon will rule the kingdom in relative peace and prosperity as he coalesces the kingdom and expands the borders and accumulates wealth. And he enters into the longest sustained period of peace that's ever, ever been experienced by Israel, either before or since. And so you'll remember that. When David, his father, dies and Solomon assumes the throne, Solomon gathers the people and they pray and the Lord invites the new crowned king to make a request to to grant a wish, if you will. In first Kings, chapter three, verse five. Can you imagine if the living God of the universe showed up and said, ask me anything you want? It's almost like a, a genie. A magic genie, only it's the God of the universe. 
You know, I'm reminded of a story of a man who's kicking along the California coast and he stumbles upon a, a, a lamp and he rubs the lamp and out comes a genie and the genie says, I'll give you whatever you want. And so the man thought about it and he said, I want you to build a highway from here to Hawaii. And the genie says, this is ridiculous. What you're asking me is way too complicated. Ask me something else. And the guy says, okay, help me understand my wife. Help me understand her thoughts, her feelings, her emotions, her sensitivities. Help me understand what makes her tick. And the genie said, look, do you want two lanes or four lanes? The Lord shows up, asks Solomon, what do you want? Think of the staggering possibilities. I want to live longer than Methuselah. I want to have an abundance of riches. I want to have peace in my kingdom. I want to have victory over my enemies. But the new king, the new king prays and he asks for the gift of wisdom. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think it took wisdom to ask for that gift? I think you're right. The gift of wisdom is the key that opens a thousand doors. And God was pleased with his request. And God granted his request. And when God granted his request, he got everything that you can imagine. Long life. Abundance of wealth. In 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon receives wisdom. In chapter 4, he increases in wisdom and in wealth in 1 Kings. In, the book, in this book, the preacher describes his exploration of pleasure in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. His impressive accomplishments in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. His tremendous wealth in chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, which basically parallels this description of Solomon. So how is it possible for someone so wise to become so foolish? How is it possible for Solomon in disobedience to what the Bible said? Remember, in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord was speaking concerning the kings that would come. And he said, look, when you have a king in Israel, do not multiply to yourself horses. Do not multiply to yourself wives. Do not multiply to yourself gold. And the reason why the Lord gives the prohibition is because he understands the frailty of human beings with gold, with wives, with horses, comes this exaggerated sense of independence. Whatever else wisdom does, it's supposed to provide a way of looking at things from God's perspective. Whatever else wisdom does, it's supposed to bring you to a place where you trust God in what looks like apparent meaninglessness or futility or a lack of purpose. And so throughout the preacher's message, he's going to return to the themes that life is a gift from God, that life is to be enjoyed as much as possible. You'll see that in chapter two, verses 24 through 26, in chapter three, verses 12 and 13, and also in verse 22, then chapter five, verses 18 and 20, chapter eight, verse 15, chapter nine, verse seven, chapter 11, verse eight. We have a limited understanding. 
We don't have unlimited understanding. But let me be very clear here. There are principles as we read this book that you have to keep in the back of your mind. Number one, one of the principal principles of hermeneutics, which is the science and art of biblical interpretation. One of the principal things about hermeneutics is you define problems by what is clear and not what is unclear. In other words, when we stumble across something and you go, this makes no sense. That we interpret it in light of what's clear. So we go from the clear to the unclear. And then we go from the certain to that which is uncertain. We have limited understanding, but what we do understand, we can trust. Now, by the way, the preacher believes that God will judge all people. And in verse 2, look what it says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, there are several important words in this book. And as you can imagine, vanity is one of them. And you can start counting right now. It appears 37 times in the book. It's the Hebrew word nevel. And then the word man appears 47 times. Labor appears 36 times. The expression under the sun will appear 30 times. He will use the word wisdom or wise 52 times. He will use the word evil 22 times. Now, keep in mind that part of the revelation is the process that the preacher uses. He is describing human reasoning, and then he's also going to come to human conclusions. Solomon comes from the perspective of seeing things under the sun. That means under the reflection of the world in which we live. So whenever you see that expression, under the sun... He's talking about the world in which human beings live. If you stop at Ecclesiastes, you're going to make some of the mistakes that cults and false religions conclude about the message of this Bible. One Bible commentator says, if you simply read the book of Ecclesiastes and you forget about the rest of the Bible, you'll remain in the shadows and you'll never come into the light. Does the book of Ecclesiastes teach that men have more in common with animals than made in the image of God? Does the book of Ecclesiastes teach that there's no life after death? The answer is no. That is not what the book of Ecclesiastes teaches. If you read the death verses carefully in this book, chapter 2, verses 14 and 16, chapter 3, verses 16 through 22, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, chapter 7, verses 2 and 4, chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, what do you discover? The preacher believes that there's life after death. How do we know that? In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 17, look what it says. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there. There is a purpose, every purpose and for every work. What does that mean? Well, think about it. If God is going to judge both the righteous and the unrighteous, doesn't it stand to reason 
that the righteous survive and the unrighteous survive in some way to experience that judgment. The preacher mentions a future judgment also in verse chapter 11, verse 9, also in chapter 12, verse 14. Clearly, one thing happens to both man and beast. In chapter 3, verse 19, it says the beast goes down into the ground and human beings go down into the ground, but they don't go to the same place. One goes down and the spirit of human beings return to God, according to chapter 3, verse 21, and also in chapter 12, verse 7. So some people who read the book of Ecclesiastes, they're uncomfortable. You might even be uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, one of the things I want to encourage you to do is to read the whole book before you come back. Now, that doesn't mean if for whatever reason, well, Gina said I can't come back till I read the whole book. <laughs> Let me just be very clear. If for whatever reason you don't manage to read the whole book, you're welcome to come back anyway. But people who read this book. They see the fatalism in chapter 3, verse 15, the pessimism in chapter 4, verse 2, the, the hedonism in chapter 2, verse 24, and chapter 8, verse 15, the materialism in chapter 3, verse 19. And when you see fatalism, pessimism, hedonism, and materialism, you begin to wonder, what? why is this thing even in the Bible? And you're going to discover the reason. Because the book of Ecclesiastes also develops some truths about God and human beings. The truth about God's existence in chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 5, verse 2. God's sovereignty and power in chapter 6, verse 2. Chapter 7, verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 1. God's justice in chapter 5, verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 12. Man's sinfulness in chapter 7, verse 20. Man's finiteness in chapter 8, verse 8. Man's duty in chapter 9 verses 7 and 10 man's immortality in chapter 3 verse 11 divine punishments and rewards in chapter 2 verse 26 in chapter 3 verse 17 in chapter 8 verse 12 in chapter 11 verse 9 in chapter 12 verse 14 now you're going to see the word God appear throughout the book this isn't a book about atheism and skepticism this is a book that clearly, firmly, specifically believes that there's a God. And the name of God is always translated Elohim. Forty-one times. Rather than the Lord or Yahweh. In other words, in this book, the emphasis is on the relationship of the creator and the creature. Rather than the redeemer and the redeemed. And clearly Solomon in all of his wisdom still didn't have the full revelation of the New Testament about life and death and resurrection and judgment. But I want to point something out to you that throughout the book, he will never, no, never contradict New Testament teachings. So when we look at verse two and we see vanity of vanities, how are we to translate that word? Well, the word means empty. It means void. 
It constitutes the emptiness that comes from trying to live a life apart from the true and the living God. We might think of it another way. Vanity is the empty feeling that wells up inside of you as you try to live your life apart from God. One Bible teacher translated it this way or or he instructed his students. He says, look, this is whatever is left after you break a soap bubble. By the way, what is left after you break the soap bubble? Just a slimy little bit of slimy soap. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher is going to explore that question. Can a man live without God? Can a human being really exist apart from a right relationship with God? And so in this book, the preacher is going to explore godless learning, which leads to cynicism in chapter one, verses seven and eight. Godless greatness leading to sorrow in chapter one, verses 16 and 18. Godless pleasure leading to disappointment in chapter two, verse one. Godless labor leading to hatred of life in chapter two, verse 17. Godless philosophy leading to emptiness in chapter three, verse one. Godless eternity leading to unfulfillment in chapter three, verse 11. A godless Life leading to depression in chapter four, verse two, godless religion leading to dread in chapter five, verse seven, godless wealth leading to trouble in chapter five, verse 12, godless existence leading to frustration in chapter six, verse 12, godless wisdom leading to despair in chapter 11, verses one through eight. Think about that. Godless learning, godless greatness, godless pleasure, godless labor, philosophy, eternity, life, religion, wealth, existence, wisdom. This becomes really the sum and the substance of what it means to live a life as people begin to explore the question. Why can't I be happy? Why can't I be satisfied? Apart from God. Distant from God. The book begins with the declaration of vanity empty, and then it will continue with illustrations of vanity in verses four through twelve. And then it's going to provide proof from scripture, proof from observation. And then the preacher is going to introduce topics of coping in a wicked world, counsel for uncertainty, conclude with what it means to fear and obey God. What does the preacher mean when he says fear and obey God? It means Develop a serious attitude about the will of God and the word of God and the revelation of God. You know, when I was a kid growing up, someone wrote a song. It it went life without God is a long, lonely road. And someday you'll have to face that fact. But until you do, I want to talk to you about the savior who's coming back. Life apart from the Lord Jesus Christ is for some short, for some long, for all lonely and empty and filled with guilt. And there's a little nugget that's been placed in this book in chapter three, verse 11. I want to just give you a hint and we're going to look at it a lot more 
when we come to the passage. But in chapter 3, verse 11, it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts. Except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. There's something about you. There's something inside of you. There's something that you fundamentally have always known and realized that God made you, that the emptiness and the loneliness and the hurt that's inside of you was meant to be filled by the very presence of God. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can provide faith and forgiveness and belief and eternal life. And that translates to ultimate satisfaction and joy and wisdom. And there's one shepherd, David's son. And there's one person who offers abundant and eternal life, and that's David's son in John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. These words were written 3,000 years ago. A thousand years before Jesus was ever born. How is it possible that in every generation, human beings ask the question, Does my life matter? Does my life have meaning? And remember, the word vanity is going to appear 37 times and it's going to encompass the emptiness that accompanies the futility of power and popularity and prestige and pleasure. But remember, it's a power, a popularity and a prestige and a pleasure that sought to be lived apart from the from the presence of God and a right relationship with Jesus. And so we go from the message to the mission. Look what it says in verse 3. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? The preacher says the mission is to ask and answer the question. What profit? It's the Word prophet, by the way, the Hebrew language is the Hebrew word yitron. Yitron is, appears ten times in this book. And yitron, prophet, it means that which is left after everything has been paid. It's the leftover. It's, it's that which is left when there's nothing left. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? It's another way of saying, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Have you ever asked that question? Why am I here? What am I doing here? I remember as a young man growing up that there were Many dark, lonely nights that I would cry myself to sleep on my pillow and I would say, Lord, what what in the stinking world am I doing here? I didn't ask to be born and I certainly didn't be asked to be born into this family. Lord, what am I doing here? I read this week about a man named John Berryman. I don't know if you know that name. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his innovative book of poetry entitled 77 Dream Songs. He served as a university professor and the Pulitzer Prize brought him fortune and fame and friends and followers. And he seemed to have everything. But on a bitter, cold day when I was a 
In high school, in 1972, he came to the final stands of his life. The poet walked across a bridge in Minnesota. He waved to a stranger. He leaped to his death in the icy Mississippi River. Why? At age 55, half famous and effective, he wrote, I still feel rotten about myself. That was a suicide note. In one of his poems, Berryman wrote, quote, After all has been said, and all has been said, man is a huddle of need. This is a note that was left by a college student, quote, To anyone in the world who cares, who am I? Why am I living? Life has become stupid and purposeless. Nothing seems to make sense anymore. The questions I had when I came to college are still unanswered. And now I am convinced that there are no answers. There can only be pain and guilt and despair here in this world. My fear of death and the unknown is far less terrifying than the prospect of the unbearable frustration and futility and hopelessness of continued existence, unquote. You don't have to answer me, but I'm going to ask you a question. I don't want to see a show of hands. But have you ever been affected by suicide? Has someone you know and you love ever killed themselves? Did you ever have to participate in some way. I was first exposed to suicide when I was in the eighth grade. A a classmate of mine hung himself. Two weeks later, another classmate died of a barbiturate overdose. In a recent survey, 7,948 university students from 48 different colleges were asked what they considered very important. What's very important to you? And the study conducted by the Johns Hopkins University reported that 16% said, this is what's important to me. I want to earn a whole lot of money. But you know what's really interesting about the study? 75% said that their first goal was to discover and find purpose and meaning to their life. In his introduction to his book, The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren cites a survey that was conducted by Dr. Hugh Moorhead, who is a philosopher, uh, a philosophy professor at Northeastern Illinois University. And Moorhead wrote to 250 famous philosophers and scientists and writers and intellectuals, and he asked them the simple question, What is the meaning of life? And some offered their best guesses. Others admitted they just made up a response. Still others honestly admitted that they were clueless. And several of the intellectuals even asked Moorhead, please write me back when you discover the answer. The wisest man who ever lived Pondered, puzzled, wondered about that question. Is happiness possible?
Why is my life so frustrating? Is it too late for me? Does my life matter? David Jeremiah in his fabulous book, Searching for Heaven on Earth, puts it this way, quote, Where can I find a little piece of heaven on the earth? If you've ever asked any of those questions, then guess what? This is the book for you. Solomon won't give a trite or a canned answer. The preacher knows that apart from God, life is empty. Life is meaningless. Life is vain. By the way, when we come to the end of verse 3, look what it says. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? That's going to be another important word, phrase. As we continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, it will appear 29 times. Life apart from God. Life apart from the Son of God is empty and futile. Life is found in the Son. By the way, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to see under the Son. In verse 3, what advantages work under the Son? Verse 9, Nothing new under the sun. Verse 14, all deeds are vanity under the sun. Chapter 2, verse 18, the fruit of labor is hated under the sun. Chapter 6, verse 12, man is mortal under the sun. Chapter 8, verse 15, pleasure is temporary under the sun. Chapter 9, verse 3, all men die under the sun. Chapter 9, verse 11, strength and speed under the sun. Speaking of vitality. Chapter 12, verse 2, life under the sun will cease. Now, think about that for just a moment. 